Welcome to this week's episode of The Formula, where we break down and explore the elements of achievement in world-class performers. I'm your host, Trevor Carlson, and today I am really, really excited to interview a mentor of mine who's had a huge impact on my life, Fark.com founder, Drew Curtis. He's got a ton of experience from running an internet service provider to running for governor of Kentucky and running Fark.com for almost 20 years. I really enjoyed this interview. We had a lot of fun and I really hope you enjoy it too. I'm Drew Curtis. I uh, born and raised and still live in Kentucky um, and I'm a Luther College grad, which is relevant to people in the Iowa area. Uh, who don't realize that I've got uh, pretty strong ties to the area. Actually, it was my home for you know three years when I was in uh, college. And it was only three because I spent one year in England working on virtual reality in 1993. Because that's that's how my life works. Um, but at any rate, uh, I moved back to Kentucky after college. Started a couple of businesses that did pretty well for a little while. Um, and like one of them was an ISP and. Those did pretty well until the telcos decided they wanted all that action and they came in and they took it. But we had a good six-year run. And it allowed me to start uh, FARC by complete accident because I couldn't have afforded the hosting costs back in 1999 when I got it going. Um, and uh, so FARC basically, people keep asking, you know, if you're not familiar with it, it's basically the easiest explanation is it's what if The Daily Show ran the Drudge Report. And it's an online community based around – Real news, but making it funny, so very much like The Daily Show, I guess. Um, and we've been around for about 18 years now. Um, we'll be 20 years old in 2019, and that's coming up in 18 months, I think. So That's really impressive, though. I mean, how? so are, are you guys the oldest or longest-lasting community online at this point in time? No, I don't think so, because there's actually been a few that predate it. So, like, Slashdot definitely was around before us. Um, Metafilter might have been around before us. I don't know. Um, but even before that, uh, I've discovered that there's ones even older than that. Like there was the well, which I think was the first online internet community. And then I, I came across a couple others that were that predates back to like 1990 that started on, you know, BBSs that weren't connected and, and they're still around. So we're not the oldest, but there's not, there's not many older, uh, mostly because most communities don't make it that long. Yeah. Well, and we'll get into that a little bit later about why those communities don't last. Uh, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but uh, you know, how, how did you start FARC and, and why? Yeah, so uh, I started it in 1999. Um, I was actually thinking of two ideas for a website. One was a curry recipe database because in 1999 there was only one other good one and that seemed like a market opportunity. Um, but the other one was is I always had sort of a penchant for finding the, the oddball stories and I have to explain this now in a way that I didn't used to, but it used to be hard to find weird offbeat stuff, um, which younger folks probably would be surprised to hear uh, because it, the news cycle now is pretty much full of it. Like it's almost all, you know, it, it, CNN basically does almost exactly the same thing we do. They just pretend to be legitimate um, at this point. So the, the news ecosystem has changed dramatically. Um, but, uh, so at the time that was something I also liked and I was, I, I would always find these weird articles. And so I just decided to create a website to post them to, you know, my friends cause I, I thought emailing them would be really annoying. So, uh, and that's how it took off. And then just step by step over the years, it got a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger. And in, uh, in 2000, just to teach myself how to code, I added comments to the site. So it wasn't just a, uh, a reading experience, and that's when the community started. Was uh, June of 2000 was when the comments went live. 
So how did you get from uh, 2000, you know, where the comments just went live, to where FARC is at now? Where um, I guess maybe tell us where where FARC is at. Like, give us an update on how much it's grown and how much things have changed since then, and then kind of talk about the process of of going from you know your first few users to to where you are now. Yeah. So um, we were never really huge, actually, and right now we're about a third of the size we were at our height, which was right back around 2009. And part of the reason for that is um, attention deficit. There's only so much time people have to waste during the day, and algorithmic social media sites have really sucked up a lot of that um, because there's just not that much time to waste. I was trying to explain this to my son the other day because he overheard me tell that to somebody else. He's like, how does that work? And I was like, okay, how much time do you spend screwing around all day? And he's like, I don't know. And I was like, well, okay, so we know it's not 24 hours because you got to sleep, so that means we know it's not but it's 16 hours because you go to school – so you have eight hours left and let's say you got to eat, you got to do your homework, you got to do whatever, let's say, and then you watch TV sometimes. It's maybe five or four and that's probably being really generous. And if something else comes along that, you know, algorithmically burrows into your brain to the point where you can't put it down, other things are going to suffer. Um, and the easier things to get rid of suffer first. And so in our case, Comedic news is not really something that has a super broad appeal. I mean, it turns out that most of the people that are interested in this conversation are going to think, you know, that seems silly. But it turns out most people don't really care about the news. So uh, as a result, I mean, that's why The Daily Show isn't outdrawing CNN, for example. Um, they've never beat CNN in ratings and, uh, and everybody knows about them. But, you know, that, it turns out it's, as a product, it's limited by the number of people who would actually care about it. So um but uh, we're at a million and change uniques a month and 20 to 25 million page views, depending on what's going on. And actually, lately, in the last six months, we've been ticking back up. Um, and I, they, when I've been talking to people, the reason why they've been coming back, it's either people who have already knew, knew about us or just found us. But people are realizing that they want an online experience that doesn't grab them like a heroin addiction. You know, that they can actually walk away from and put down and they're realizing that this is a big problem. And so they're trying to find a way to disconnect yet stay informed. And it turns out that my site kind of, you know, performs that function. We're not as addictive as other places are and we're not trying to keep you around all day long because honestly, I don't know how to do it. And it <laughs> seems like it's kind of uncool anyway. All right. Um, but what's happened over the years is, is that we've gone through many, many, many cycles of change. I mean, I would have to say that, I mean, this is just a complete guess, but the makeup of the community um, probably is completely changes itself. I'd say like 95% about every three to four years, just due to, you know, people's life changes, you know, they find it, they like it for a while, they get busy. The most common path we found was, is that people are, have a job where they're not doing anything, find our website, hang out on it for quite a bit, get a promotion don't have any time for it anymore and go away. And then they get another promotion where all of a sudden they have plenty of time and they come back. So you have this really odd sort of cycle, but it's, it's very, it's constantly renewing itself over and over again. So what, what was the experience of, of starting your, your first business like? Um, it was really strange. Um, I have a completely separate talk I give on how to function as an entrepreneur in a family where you don't have any relatives who are entrepreneurs. Um, because most people who are entrepreneurs have somebody in their family and that's generally how they do it because, you know, otherwise, if you don't have anybody in your family that's an entrepreneur, everything you suggest that you're about to do sounds insane. <laughs> and it's really hard to convince people like, yeah, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to open up a 
company that does dial-up internet service, which is a technology that nobody uses right now, but I'm pretty sure they will. I'm going to spend all this money doing it and work 16 hours a day. And all your friends and family are like, that sounds completely crazy. What the hell's wrong with you? <laughs> um, you really need somebody around you who can be like, no, no, you're on the right track. Yeah. Uh, my problem was I never had that. The best I had was, was there was a guy who ran a comic book store around the corner from me. He got into it. He wasn't a comic book guy, but his son was and started as a hobby. And then in his mid-50s, he got laid off. And he was an engineer and you have a hard time getting hired because in your mid-50s, you're really expensive. Yeah. And people right out of college are almost as good. And so uh, he had nothing else to do. So he went and he started working on the comic book store full time, even though it was losing money. And what happened was is that when he did that, the comic book store revenues went up by 10x. <laughs> and he was instrumental because I did he didn't give me a lot of advice, but he gave me the, the piece of advice that I needed the most, which was when I was starting my business, I was doing it on the side working full time. And six months in, it wasn't making enough money to pull me on full time. And I talked to him about it and he told me that story. And he said the moral of that story is, is that um, he's like, you, your business, by the time you need to get on your business full time, it will still not be able to afford you. You have to jump anyway. Mm hmm. And if I, I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't heard that advice. I mean, maybe I would have done it anyhow, but I still remember that thinking, okay, well, then if this is what has to be done, then, then here we go. Um, and, and it's true. I mean, actually, you can't run a business part-time and have it succeed yeah. unless you get stupid lucky. And if that happens, that business is so easy and so full of cash that, that larger operators than you were going to move in and knock you out pretty soon. So either way, the upshot is, is that, you know, you have to jump in, but I, I didn't have anybody I could talk to about this stuff. You know, I mean, I was working in, uh, aside from the fact that it was, you know, it was a technology that, you know, wasn't, well, I mean, to me it was going to take off, but it, you couldn't convince anybody else back in 1996 that this was a slam dunk. Um, so, and then running FARC was the same way. I mean, I, I live in Kentucky. I didn't know anybody in the digital space. I didn't meet anybody who had any experience I could draw on until at least 2006. So I was like 10 years down the road at that point being an entrepreneur. I was 32 years old before I met anybody that I could treat, like I could actually ask questions and get answers from. So I just kind of muddled through and took guesses. And for the most part, I got them right. And uh, other things I got completely wrong and just learned and kept going. Yeah. That's a that's an interesting story. I'd never heard the part about the comic book guy before, but was he would you say he was like your your first mentor that you had or somebody that you kind of looked up to? That was probably the only thing he told me that ever <laughs> mattered uh, because other than that, I, he was he was an interesting guy, but uh it, as far as the rest of it went what I was doing was so different from what he was doing. Um, he just kind of threw that out there as their experience. So that was about, that was about it. So, you know, he wasn't, unfortunately not a mentor. Like I, the story of my, my experience is, is very different from most people's. I, I can't actually point to anybody that I would have considered a mentor. I met somebody who was extremely knowledgeable in 2006. who I'm still really good friends with that. I could bounce stuff off of. Um, but he wasn't exactly a mentor either. He was more of a gut check at that point because I was so far down the road like I was successful at that stage so I guess that's more of a coaching position than a mentor if that makes any sense um but yeah so I, and I wish I'd had one um because it, it would have been a tons easier absolutely I mean I would say that as far as like mentorship goes I've been very very fortunate uh just because of you know I've when I when I got started, I was I didn't know any better, so I was just like, "Hey, I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, this person looks like they're doing a really good job at it. Um, what do I need to learn to uh, 
to get from where I'm at now to where yeah, to where you're at. That's um, perfect. And the problem I had was the things I was doing, nobody else was doing them. Uh, yeah. So for example, in 1999, <laughs> if I need advice on how to run an online community, there's nobody there, you know, or internet yeah. service providers. I, I the only people who knew how to do them were my competition, and they weren't going to tell me. So it was a it was it's been a weird spot to be in. Like I, I I was telling people, and I think this is going in the book I'm writing, but one of my sort of weird things that happens to me in life is is I tend to start working in fields or areas two years too early consistently. And most of the time that means dead on arrival. Once in a while you get a big hit out of the park. Um and I can't tell you like I, I'm just gonna claim it because it just keeps happening over and over again, but I'm not really sure how that ends up being something I jump into um, because it's not like I'm looking for it. Um, and in fact, most cases when I start working on it, it's just cause it's interesting. I don't realize that it's about ready to blow up. Yeah. So which brings me to like how, how you learn these different types of lessons, like how you get better as a, you know, whether it's running an online community or, or as an entrepreneur uh, from what it sounds like you're, it's almost like you're saying the best way to learn is just to kind of like jump in, start making mistakes and then kind of, adjust as you go hopefully not make too many mistakes but yeah right well sort of so sort of i would i would i would adjust that slightly and say it would be better if you could find somebody who could tell you along the way whether or not you're on the right track or not because that would be the better way to do it but in lieu of that don't just sit around and wait you know if you can't find anybody who can tell you the answer then just take a shot it's not the best way but it's the only path sometimes yeah i i i think that totally makes sense it's it's one of those things where it's like the only way you you actually find the right path is by like trying out a, a few different ones. Mm -hmm. uh, it helps if somebody can say like, no, don't, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. If somebody actually or, knows what you should do, then that helps. But there'll be times where nobody has any idea. And then at that point, you know, the, the worst thing to do would be just sit there and do nothing. But you have to be careful trying that stuff too. Cause like, um, one of the things about, uh, FARC. So for example, here's a, here's a sort of a best practice I've adopted, which is basically anytime a new, Technology platforms, social media, whatever. I mean, we've seen hundreds of these things in the last, you know, 18 years pops up. I don't jump on them immediately. I wait because um, I don't have enough resources to try every new thing that comes along. And to give an example, um, in it was 2008 or 2009, I went over to the New York Times, and I, I don't know if they still have this or not, but I was getting a little tour, and they had a room where they had literally every handheld device, one of each. And there were people in there testing the New York Times platform on every single one of those. And my problem is I can't do that. You know, and not only that, uh, we can be sure that of all the devices in that room, only one or two are going to be the relevant platforms. So my thing was like, instead of, you know, doing the same thing they did and getting and buying all those devices and hiring a team of 50 people to code, you know, uh, compliant, you know, platforms for each one of those devices. I decided to sit back and wait. It was clear that mobile was going to take off, but what was not clear was how it was going to do it. Um, my gut was is that iPhones were going to be a big thing, but if I had to take another guess back in 2009, I'd have said BlackBerry, and I would have been wrong. So, uh, and it would have cost me a lot of money to go down that road and find out, whoops, that that was the wrong call. Or, you know, like um, a lot of people made uh, tablet platforms back in 2009 and 2010. Um, and I, I don't think that's a dead end technology, but it wouldn't have paid off for the last seven years if we'd done that. So, uh, because I don't have the resources, sometimes it is better to sit and wait a little bit. Um, but the, the thing is, it doesn't matter if you're first, second or third, but it does matter that you get there at some point. Um, so you can be a little late to the game and still, still crank along. Okay. But, um, 
you can't be a lot late. So that's that's sort of the, that's all you know. You got to do something balanced against the cost of being wrong. Um, and so you got to take educated guesses after a while. And there's there's some things that I missed um, that I would have liked to take a shot at and didn't didn't quite work out. Like I would have liked to gotten into the mobile side of things sooner than we did. Um, but part of the reason we didn't was because there was no market case for it. So even still, we make practically nothing off of mobile. But now it's clear that in the next few years, there will be money. Um, but even currently today, it's not that great. Right. So I, I'm, a, I'm thinking back to uh, a couple of years ago when, uh, after, right after you spoke at the University of Northern Iowa, I, uh, I was working on a, a mobile app startup at the time and, you know, I was going through some growing pains as I was learning, like how, how, uh, you know, getting a, a mobile app startup off the ground actually worked. And I sent you an email and I asked you for, um, I asked you for advice on a couple different things. I felt like when you responded to my email, you put a lot of time and thought into it and it was actually like completely opposite of what everyone else told me. So what advice would you give to those, uh, starting their own business today? Yeah, there's um there's tons of answers to that question. Um, I'm trying to think on the really basic stuff. Like like I said, the first one would be is if you don't come from a family of entrepreneurs, be ready for pushback. Uh, lots of pushback. Um, the the short answer to the talk that I gave is basically the number one reason not to do something is because it's safer not to do it. But people who are employed by other organizations are not in a safer position. They are as precarious as anybody. They just don't realize it. Um, and in fact, it doesn't really pay to tell them because they start getting freaked out. But my point is like, you know, uh, it doesn't matter how loyal you are to your company. If they have a bad quarter, they're going to cut you. They don't care. Um, that's just how it is. They're not going to. And, and because of that, it's like it's, so that to me doesn't seem safer. That means that if I put all this work and this loyalty into a thing and I get literally nothing back for that, well, it's like, well, hold on. Uh, you know, how, how much safer is this exactly? So that's sort of the beginning one is like, you know, just realize that you are taking a risk, but at the end of the day, the worst thing that can happen is bankruptcy. And that may sound a little flip, but it's honestly not, not bad. I mean, I've never done it. Don't get me wrong, but it's not a permanent, it's not like losing an arm, you know, like this isn't a, it, it, it sucks a lot, but this isn't a permanent death blow. You know, you can come back from it. I know a guy that, Spent 20 years working on multiple businesses, and his fifth one was the one that took off, but the other four resulted in bankruptcy and just bad stuff. But at the end of the day, he looked back and he's like, you know, but it wasn't that bad. You know, he thought it was at the time, but it wasn't the, the disaster that he thought it was. Um, so it's it's one of those deals where you don't have a lot to lose. Um, it's still worth taking a shot. You know, don't get me wrong. Don't you know, at the same time, I wouldn't say you just got there and throw all caution to the wind and go for it. Um, figure out what your your worst case scenario is. Um, and then go from there. Um, to give you an example, um, and you may be surprised to figure it out. So like your worst case scenario for yourself might be, well, I have to go get another job. Well, if you know where you would do that, then that's kind of all you need. You know, if, if it's like, okay, if I got to close this thing up next week, declare bankruptcy, but I can get another job and get X amount of salary and come back from that, then go for it. You're good. So just one of those things where you got to make sure that, you know, all your ducks are in a row, but don't spend a lot of time on it. Just sort of figure out you know, sort of what's the worst that could happen and go from there. Um, after that is you need a partner. Um, you can go it alone, uh, but you're going to need help from people who have the skills you don't. Um, and in particular, um, from the entrepreneur side, I noticed this is an observation I picked up in uh, business school is that entrepreneurs usually come in twos because you need one person who's the one who's sort of the visionary, the idea person, and the one who drives it forward. 
And you need the other person who's basically the COO, the person who covers the ops side of things and figures out how to make it all work. Because um, and I like to use the, the example of Steve Jobs. If you look at the Steve Jobs career path, Steve Jobs without a COO is just a crazy asshole. And he couldn't get anything done. You know, as long as he had Wozniak at Apple, it was great. Wozniak left, things start going downhill. Um, and he gets bounced out of there. And then he finds, um, uh, what's his name, Lasseter, I think it was, and then he does Pixar, and that works great. You know, and basically then he picks up Tim Cook but as, as a COO. But Jobs without a COO was just some guy screaming at people. And he did not know how to make a company run. And he had no idea how to do it. And I figure, I feel like COOs get a bad rap because they don't get any publicity. But on the other hand, that might be what you want. You know, I mean, it turns out a lot of people don't mind being behind the scenes because the COO is not the person on the conference call with the investors. Uh, so it's not a, not a bad deal. But you need two. Um, and you can maybe have three. But one of those people is going to leave, almost certainly. Um, and you just got to pay for it. Um, for example, I know a company that I'm working with that has five founders on it. And they don't all – it's not an even split. And they don't care. And the other three guys are – kind of, you know, keeping it going, but because they don't have that much of a stake in it, they're less interested. So they're, you know, they're starting to look around and where they can float their resumes and jump to. So it's one of those deals where, you know, it can be, you can have a silent money person, but just understand that, you know, only two of you are likely to be active in this thing long-term. You might get lucky, but that's probably how it's going to go. Um, as far as starting stuff up goes, you want to uh, uh, do all the boring stuff. You want to you want to make sure all your documents are done. You want your articles of corporation, all that stuff that you can find in any book. You want to make sure you get that stuff nailed down. Um, you can do it yourself. Um, just be ready to change it later because whatever you do initially is going to suck. Um, it's not going to suck badly or be damaged, but once if something actually starts working, you're going to want to have a stronger operating agreement than whatever you come up with in the beginning. Um, so that's something to look out for too. Um, and I'm trying to think there's a, there's a couple of other early – issues with it um i'm trying to think of what order to hit them in one of the ones that I, I i was thinking of talking about that that group of five guys is is that if you take money in from an investor and it's probably going to be friends of yours initially um the way you want to do it is you want to make sure that you don't give away more than 20 percent um and the reason why and this actually you can explain it to them Silicon Valley doesn't take more than 20% on an investment either. And the reason they don't is because they learned a long time ago, if they take more, the founders get disinterested and they leave. So it turns out if you go up over 20, 25%, you've actually just killed the company because the founders, no matter how excited they are initially, are going to, going to walk off. And it's fascinating to me that because, I mean, Silicon Valley could always ask for 90%, right? But they don't because they learned that that's just a terrible idea. So if you're taking money from other people, make sure that they know that that's the deal. And also make sure they know that they're probably setting fire to it because they probably are. Get everybody's minds in the right place. You know, you don't want somebody to invest in your company expecting a huge return. Maybe, maybe they will, but probably this is just gone. So don't worry about it. Um, I'm trying to think what else as far as like beginning stuff goes too. Um, uh, one other thing would be to train your people that you're working with to not say no to anything, but try to find a way to say yes. And this is this is sort of a, a a subtle difference. This isn't having them agree with everything you decide to do, but uh, your other people might start dragging their feet. Really, you know, don't ever accept no. We can't. Could we do this? And if it turns out, how could we do this? Is oh well, if we hired another hundred people who were amazing at this thing and we had some incredible stroke of luck that we could totally pull this off. Okay, then maybe we shouldn't do it. That's what I mean. 
So no, it, it's a it's an improv comedy trick, actually. Uh, if you've ever done improv comedy on the stage, you're always supposed to say yes and in your responses. And you want to train people that you're working with to start thinking in terms of yes and as opposed to no. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting lesson because, uh, you know, that I had a, I had a remote worker previously or yeah, I think it was remote worker. I was like, Hey, uh, can you, can you get this stuff? Can you figure out how to do this? Can you, if I send you some training videos, can you sort this out? And this person would always be like, no, I don't know how to do that. I'm like, but it's pretty easy to like, (laughs) you know, Google it and figure it out. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, on top of it too, it's like, I mean, most people are actually trying to tell you is, is that, you know, it's very unlikely that we'll succeed at whatever the thing you're talking to, but yeah, of course. Like that's the whole point. It is it is exactly highly unlikely that you're going to succeed. But the reason you're doing this is because you're trying. So it's very if you get the wrong combination of people, you can talk yourself out of making any steps at all. Even if you, the person who runs the company, still wants to take it forward, you could have an entire team of people that just tells you no because they. Uh, and I realized this a few years ago where I had somebody in my crew who was doing that. And part of the reason is because when you're doing software design it's always tricky when you add new functionality because adding new functionality is either the easiest damn thing in the world or a goddamn nightmare. And the problem is, is that if you keep encountering that coin flip, you start not wanting to do anything. And so I totally understand it. But at the end of the day, it was like, okay, look, I I get it, but we got to push through this. And one of the things that will, uh, will come up probably is one of the objections will be, that's not what this company does. And that is actually the most useless argument that anybody can possibly make is the reason why is this. Uh, if you look at the example of Nintendo, so in like 1875, Nintendo is a paper company. And they eventually moved into playing cards. In the 1960s, they owned hotels and taxi cabs, and now they're a video game company. The reason why they've been around almost 150 years is because we don't do this as our business was something that they shot down. I mean, I don't know exactly how or how it worked out, but I mean, if you think about the conversion of you know starting out as a paper company ending up in video games which in 1875 you couldn't even explain to people and the reason they did was because they realized that and this is sort of a real general rule for business if you and your team can do literally any other business better than the one you're currently working on you should totally morph into that so uh, when you gave the talk at, at you and i you talked about uh failing fast and what that meant to you, you kind of touched on what it meant in business and what it meant in uh, relationships as well. So, so, uh, you want to kind of rehash that a little bit again on what failing fast means to you? Yeah. So the, the, the failing fast thing, um, w- the thing it definitely isn't is failing a lot. Like, you know, nobody wants to do that. You know, it'd be better if you never did. Um, the running joke in Silicon Valley as of a couple of years ago was, is the term pivot, um, was actually the, I was talking to some VCs about it and they hate that word. And the reason why is because they're like, ideally you don't pivot at all. You come out with the thing that's awesome and it works. Um, and they said the problem was that they felt like the, the pivot was being used as an excuse too often to just justify failure, which they didn't like. Um, and so it's not that you want to fail, but it's one of those deals where, uh, using relationships is a better example. You know, everybody's got friends who have been dating somebody or married to somebody for two or three years and, just not going well. Like it's not bad. It's not abusive, but they don't like hanging out with them like at all. You know, like it's, everything's just sort of like, you know, it's, it's not a good situation. And at least when you're dating, pulling the cord on that while hard is not going to be this massive mess. Like uh, a divorce might be, I mean, divorces are always nasty. Even a good one is, is terrible. And so is ending your relationship with your business. Um, but 
the thing about it is, is that uh, a lot of people um, that are in my circle have hung in on relationships for far too long because they thought everybody else would think that they gave up too soon. And in reality, everybody else was sitting around going, oh, God, this is a tragedy that they're still doing this. If your business is failing, all of your friends are sitting around thinking, oh, my God, this is a tragedy that they're still doing this. I guarantee it. You will get no points for staying in long or uh, as long as possible. Nobody cares. Everybody just feels bad for you. Um, I had a friend of mine who went through that. Her business failed for about two and a half years. And it was obvious two years before that actually failed that this was what was going to happen. And she hung in anyway because that was her personality. But at the end of it, she was like, yeah, I got nothing out of it. And they're like, yeah, nobody – there's no trophies for this either. Nobody's impressed. You know, it's like – yeah, I, I wouldn't have. I told her that, you know, they, they, in the meantime, what she could have done with all that energy was, you know, start up something else and, you know, maybe get a good head start on it. But the only time I would say that somebody should stay in a failing business, by the way, and I actually did this with somebody in my MBA class, was sometimes you'll learn something on the way down just from from watching. And in particular, it was a gal who was essentially the the unnamed COO of the company, and it had two founders that were just not working out, and this thing was starting to death spiral. And I told her, I was like, you know what? I was like, if you eventually want to start your own company, I recommend as long as the paycheck clears, stay in and watch and take notes and learn what not to do. So that would be about the only time I would say you had to stick around. But otherwise, just get out because nobody's impressed, right. um, and it's not a good use of your time. So going back to the relationship analogy, I had another friend who developed what I, I think is the most date, amazing dating strategy ever. I, I was just blown away by this. So she would, um, she didn't even realize she was doing this until I pointed it out, but she was on a three-week cycle. So week one was, just met this person, they're kind of awesome, things are great. Week two is, we're hanging out, things are going great. And then by the beginning of week three, it was kind of like, well, yeah, so now that that sort of that new relationship energy thing is done, it's like, yeah, I don't know about this. <laughs> and then by week three, she'd be like, yeah, it doesn't feel right. I'm not. Um, and her thing was more like it's not that she couldn't make it work. It was just that it was going to be more effort than she was willing to put in. Um, and I don't disagree with that because relationships and businesses are the same. It's like while having a successful relationship or business is a lot of work, it doesn't have to seem like it. Um, or put another way, uh, my wife once, uh, gave me crap because in an interview I, I told people I worked an hour and a half a week and, uh, she said, I, 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 I feel like I do today even still, but she pointed out, she goes, just because you like it doesn't make it not work. And I was like, oh yeah, that's a good point. That's how relationships and businesses should be. It should be a lot of work, but you shouldn't care. Um, if it starts feeling like work, then you got some problems, either step out or, you know, pull the cord and be done. Yeah. I think that's really good advice. Um, that's very good advice, man. I, my, uh, my gears are spinning a little bit after that. So, uh, but how do you, how do you decipher between, you know, this is like a, a non-starter, a, uh, like you need to get out, like this thing is going down. Uh, like how do you decipher between like normal, normal business or relationship stuff, um, that can cause stress and anxiety compared to the right. stuff that's like this thing is burn this thing is going to burn down and you need out. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, the, the relationship analogy, I don't know how this fits on the uh, business side, but the relationship analogy is it doesn't matter why you care uh, that something is not fun. It, it could be completely irrational, it, but it still matters and it's not going away. And a lot of times you can't get around it. I, I, that's probably the same for business, but with business, there's an extra step of, 
part of the problem with being an entrepreneur is, is that by definition, you were probably an insane optimist. And then otherwise you would have never tried this stuff. And the problem with being an insane optimist is you can miss market changes occasionally. Like my react, I always tell people that in business, your reaction to any, any bad negative event ought to be, we can work with this, even if it's completely ridiculously bad. Um, I tell the story of a friend of mine who was an attorney, uh, he was a public defender and he said, uh, he had his, uh, client get up on the stand. And the first question that the prosecution asked his client was, did you kill this guy? And the guy said, yeah, I did. And he threw, he stood up and he, uh, he threw an objection without having any idea what he was actually going to object to at the time. And he said, as God is my witness, he said, I swear to God, I, the first thought through my head was we can still work through this. So that's that's pretty much an entrepreneur mentality right there. But at the end of the day, sometimes you can't. And so in order to do this, and I don't know how to give people advice because this is sort of a personality thing, but you have to at least occasionally reflect like, okay, what is really going on here in the business environment? Um, in case in point, so my first, uh, my first business was a dial-up internet service provider. In 1996, this was a really good thing. But in 2002, when things started going south, that was very hard. I spent a lot of time running from looking at that and just thinking, okay, well, this will just get miraculously better or, you know, this downturn is going to end somehow. If you can't answer the question how it's going to end, that's when you might want to take a good hard look at it. And in my case, what happened was is that it was clear that internet service was moving to DSL and cable. DSL was too expensive for us to run. Cable was a non-starter. We couldn't even get into it. And there was no chance of more people suddenly signing up for dial-up internet. And so looking at that, that was like, okay, this is probably done. And uh, so that's, that's what you have to do. You have to be extremely honest with yourself, and that's going to be the hardest thing in the world because as an optimist, you're going to want to run. Um, the other way to do it is uh, if you're the CEO and you have a good COO, the person who takes care of stuff, they're probably dying to tell you you should get the hell out of it. <laughs> um, so it might be good to talk to them because they're the ones that have to keep an eye on that kind of thing, and they can see the negatives too, better than you can. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's, man, I think that's some really, really good advice. Uh, just, just from, just from business and relationships in general. And I think that's something that a lot of people pass up is like, you know, they're like, you know, you just got to grind it out and struggle. It's like, well, not always. Yeah. 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 Yeah, There's a lot of stuff that we, we believe that we were told that just kind of sticks in our head and forget to question it. You know, like the whole issue of like, Every entrepreneur knows that the the thing fed to the working man, the just do the right thing and work hard and you'll be rewarded is just utter bullshit and it's a complete lie. You know, we need that we need to reexamine occasionally because somebody else told us those things hoping we would believe them for their benefit. And one of those is, you know, staying in and sticking it out and working really hard. Well, that benefits the boss, um, but doesn't necessarily make your quality of life go up. And, and like I said, the other way to look at it is, is that maybe you can't tell yourself not to work hard. That's cool. But the other point being, nobody's impressed on the other side of it. You're not going to get a trophy for it. Nobody's going to be like, hey, great job hanging in that crappy relationship for five years. Yeah, man, you should have gone for six. You know, nobody's going to tell you that. Um, and the same thing goes for business as well. So that's realizing that there is no upside to hanging in longer, I think, is the helpful point there. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's some good advice and uh, man they need to be playing that people need to be playing that uh, that soundbite you just did there uh, quite a bit just I, I I just it makes me hurt on the inside when I see people suffer right like unnecessarily yeah. and it's whether it's a business or relationship and it's like you know every 
what's what's that meme with the dog with the house on fire and he's like drinking the oh, yeah, coffee yeah, he's like, fine, it's yeah. like no every, everything's fine it's like everybody yeah. everybody can see the house burning down except for them <laughs> yeah exactly uh, like i said it's hard as an entrepreneur to figure that out because we are stupid optimists so we're gonna be the last people that notice it but it's one of those deals where you, know, you have to once in a while just take a look at pragmatically you know is this thing gonna last and I, i've had to do that with fark for example because you know up until recently, traffic was going down and, and revenues have been tough because of the way the ad market works. But on the other hand, it's still highly valued by a lot of people. And it, like I'm writing a book and without it, I would be spending four hours a day doing research. But because of what I do, I'm spending zero hours a day doing research because I'm just finding this stuff automatically. Um, so there's still significant value there. Um, and so it's one of those deals where it's questionable what's going to happen with the revenue side of things on, in the long term. But there are, we, I'm not without options at this point. So, you know, if I had been thinking, if I had looked up and found no options, then I would pull the plug on this thing tomorrow. Um, but, you know, there's there's other stuff in the works. The market changes relatively quickly. I've got balls moving, basically, like very specific ones rather than so I don't, I'm not just operating on hopes here. There's like stuff happening. So, right. It's one of those deals where but you have, they have to take a look and go, you know, OK, am I am I really right about this? You know, should we just yank this or what? You know, uh-huh. Yeah, and I I'm interested to see what what happens because I'm sure, with you because I'm sure that you got something something really interesting cooking. So so I'll be excited. Always, to... yeah. Well, that's the thing. And, and to give it to give it sort of a more specific example, it's like uh, the spot we're in right now has to do with the way the ad market is changing. Um, everybody wants to do autoplay video ads, and the, it, it, whenever the, the ad market does makes a stupid decision like this, it takes them about eighteen months to realize. So until they figure that out, we have to ride out this storm. Um, and so it's one of those deals where okay. I immediately put 12 balls in motion and it it turns out that most of them are in in different stages of working out. Um, So it's one of those deals where that's what you do. You don't try one thing, you try many and then you hopefully most of them pan out. And if they don't, as long as you got one that's going to totally work and carry the day, you're good. So that's, that's kind of where we're at right now. Yeah. Well, yeah, like I said, I'm excited to to see what happens and, and I, and knowing you, I'm sure that I'm sure that everything is going to work out fine. So where do you see the uh, the biggest benefit from somebody investing time and in building an online community right now? Yeah, so um, I've been thinking a lot about this because I actually had somebody um, locally contact me who wanted to build a community for a very specific reason, which I found fascinating. Um, we'll get more into like sort of like how communities are built, but generally speaking, communities are all here for a thing. And so depending on what that thing is, that's kind of the value. They're good for getting a message out and they're good for making a thing more interesting. And to give you an example, so this guy comes and contacts me and he wants to create a community because he's rarely in his social media coming across insightful, nonpartisan political articles that will allow him to understand issues um, because nobody's writing them. They exist, but they're not out there. Uh, they don't tend to get a lot of social lift because people aren't like, yay, neutrality. I mean, I'm not, you know, it's, it's hard to get excited on. This is a well thought out, well reasoned, non, uh, you know, uh, controversial look at a topic. Yay. So he's looking at, he wants to find a way to create a community where he can do that because he realizes that Facebook and Twitter aren't really the spots for it. And, and I thought that's an interesting goal that he has. You know, I mean, uh, I'm actually kind of interested in it, too. Um, so one of the benefits of it is, is that you the thing you pick, whatever it is that you're excited about, allows you to share it with more people in a better way, basically, and find more like minded folks. So that, I think that's the main one there. And then after that, it's to get get information out. 
you know, like what this guy wants to do. He wants to find, he wants to basically, you know, use like a FARC-like platform and post articles that are specifically well thought out and well reasoned that friends of both political persuasions can read. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. Um, so I would probably say you're one of the wittiest people I've ever met. Uh, how did you get to be so witty? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it was probably there all along. I, I, I Retroactively looking backwards, what I, I like about it the most now is it's humor unlocks people's brains in ways that arguments don't, um, especially in politics. And I think the answer to that question is, is that I'm always in a hurry to try to get through stuff. And possibly the reason for that might be that, uh, using humor gets points across quicker. Um, but I can't say that it was an intentional decision. (laughs) You're just born that way. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I definitely think sideways, though. Like I like to analyze problems from all angles and specifically things people haven't thought of. And it turns out that comedy aligns very well with that. Because usually like when you break down what, what it is, it's really we laugh because it's, it is something we haven't thought of in a way we didn't think of it. That's pretty much what makes you laugh. So as a result, that's kind of how my brain works anyway. And I guess that's that's probably it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to put it because – yeah, looking at things a little bit sideways does make them, I don't know, at least a little bit more ridiculous. Because <laughs> they're like, wait a minute. Yeah. I never thought about it like that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Like I said, I think that comedy is the perfect way to package payloads of actual ideas. Yeah. So what uh, what do you do in your in your free time for fun when you're not working your hour and a half a week on, on FARC? Yeah, yeah. Um, it depends. I'm a very social guy, so I get out a lot. Um, I've been trying to take up cycling, um, which takes up a bunch of time. And then kids, of course, obviously, those guys are around. and I mean, They're older, so at this point, it's more like you kind of hang out until they want to do something as opposed to setting agendas and whatever. But, you know, that's okay. So, um, And yeah, I have I have a bunch of other weird, unrelated projects that I'm always working on. I'm always thinking about stuff. So, um, you know, I can't specifically – think of i'm still sort of dabbling on the political side i'm still writing a book i'm still advising people on startups so it's pretty varied but that's kind of how i like to roll yeah always on your toes doing something new so what what would what's something that uh, that you've learned this week this week um oh man there's been a bunch of stuff well the most recent thing i learned um was like how i don't ever ask people what they do because I'm not really that, that interested in it. And I told my friend that. I was like, yeah, I really don't care what people do. And he said, no, you do care what people do. You just don't care how they make their money. Uh, and I was like, yeah, okay, that's 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 right. So that's something I learned this week is that he's absolutely right about that. I don't care how people make their money. I, I do care what people do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's – ever since uh, – It's an interesting discussion. Yeah, ever, ever <laughs> since that you you said that where it's like people who don't actually give a shit what you do ask what you do. Like, you know what I mean? They're like trying to figure out what you do so they can benefit themselves. Yeah, exactly. Because that, well, that's what the sort of the question he says is that when they ask you, what do you do? Most of the time people are asking you, how do you make your money? And specifically, how much money do you have? Because they're social climbing. This is a bigger problem in larger cities like New York and San Francisco, where it's literally the first question that gets asked, specifically because if you don't give a satisfactory answer, they're just out of there. So that's that's one of the deals there. Yeah. It was a question I never asked because I wasn't as interested in that as I was, you know, how cool is this person? Yeah. And then later on, what 
it would be interesting and more informative. But it's it's a lot of fun to learn who people are before you know what they do or how successful they are because that makes a big difference. Yeah, it's I uh, I it's one of my biggest pet peeves is when well I shouldn't say it's a pet peeve it's just it makes me very uncomfortable when the first time I meet someone they look at me and they're like so what do you do and I'm like I don't want to talk about work at all so um well Well, actually so you could say that you'd be like I'll tell you later yeah Uh, (laughs) you know but right now I'm kind of kind of over it I'm I'm off the clock yeah yeah the two answers I've been using recently have been like oh I'm a janitor and then it's like and then they're like oh like and then they're like oh so what do you do for fun i'm like there we go all right we'll move past that or yeah or i'll say like yeah so this is the person we're talking to yeah yeah and then uh or i'll say something like well you know i uh i salsa dance for fun so that's kind of what i do and then they're like oh tell me more i actually yeah (laughs) i got a i got a meeting with somebody um i didn't even realize who they were and they they asked me that and i was like oh you know i just salsa dance and do stuff and and they're like you salsa dance? You don't look like a salsa dancer. I'm like, I'm like, Hey, you know, I do what I can. And, uh, yeah. it turns out that person, uh, owned a pretty decently sized company and we were meeting up and next week and grabbing a coffee to talk about some opportunities to work together. So it's like, yeah, the, the email I sent him was like, Hey, I'm the dude that salsa dances. You want to grab coffee still? And yeah, uh, exactly. They won't forget. Right. So <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's, it's we kind of talked about it earlier. I think it's just being like your authentic self like not everybody just wants to talk yeah. about work and shit all the time so so you uh you became an entrepreneur in your what late 20s or so um but my yeah. my question for you is early 20s actually right out of college early yeah. 20s so yeah so what did you want to be when you when you grew up um i'm trying to think when i was a kid i don't actually know uh when i was little when i was a teenager it went from i was really good at math and so i was thinking about doing math something but then uh I wanted to be a writer when I was in high school. I actually wrote a book before I graduated high school. It's not very good, but it was 720 pages long. It was a big, big book. Um, so I thought I might want to be a writer for a while, but I was like, that just seemed too impossibly hard to break into. And writing's fun, but I don't know. It wasn't one of the things that just grabbed my attention. And then in uh, college, I started out being a history major until I was like, well, I can't figure out what to do with this exactly. Um, and then I found computer science by total accident and liked it and was like, well, something I like that I make a lot of money doing. Okay. I should probably stick with this. So that's kind of how that happened. But I don't remember. I, I remember I was, I wanted to do something really, really cool, crazy, deep sciencey stuff when I was younger. Like I remember wanting, thinking about like nuclear engineering would be interesting or, you know, genetic uh, engineering. But, um, then when I read into them, it, it just didn't seem that interesting after all. You know, it sounded like it would be fun to say you're a nuclear engineer, but actually doing it, not, not that interesting. So, yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is a wrap. If you would be so kind, you will find a link down in the show notes. Uh, that link is going to take you over to iTunes where, if you'd like to, you can give us a five-star review. Now, giving us a five-star review helps us to rise up in the ranks on iTunes and for people like you to be able to find our show. Uh, Also, if you have any ideas for anyone you would like to hear us interview, please feel free to shoot me an email, trevor at helixacademy.co or jump over to the Twitter sphere where you can shoot us a little message at helixacademyco. Thanks again for tuning in this week and I look forward to seeing you or having you tune in to listen next week. Thanks everybody.